Hello there, welcome to the Maths Communications 2020 podcast, a series of podcasts where we explore various archives and collections. My name is Faith Williams and I'm joined today by Tamara Thornhill, who is the Corporate Archivist for Transport for London, otherwise known as TFL. Tamara, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everybody. What is, um, so what is your average day at, um, at the archive? Average day at the archives, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, so I'm the corporate archives manager for, for Transport for London. So my role is ordinarily sort of a little bit more removed from day-to-day -day handling of the collections than some of the other archivists, because um, obviously I have the sort of people management role as well as strategy planning, horrible financial spreadsheets. Um, but I would say sort of I've always got at least sort of four um, long-term projects that I'd be working on they would generally be around raising the profile of the archives um, they would also be based on particular projects to do with sort of improving accessibility so um, for example at the moment I'm working through an enormous uh, set of closure material um, to see if we can bring forward the, cl the closure dates that's on it so that it's accessible to people more quickly than um, we originally thought that it would be. Um, and then in addition to, to sort of the long-term projects, there'll always be ad hoc things that, that come up. So that may be to do with a particular inquiry someone's got. Um, it's often to do with something that the press office chucks at us. Um, so they want a fact checking or they want some something fun to use as a, as a hook for a story or something to relate it back to kind of the past. Um, and then there's always just just with with archive collections you know everywhere there's there's always something crops up um in the sense that you'll find something interesting pretty much every day or somebody in in sort of the the service will find something interesting and, and you'll have you'll want to go and have a look at that um and, and have, a, have a good discussion about that so it's nice and varied um and that is one of the things I love about my job, really, is, is just how varied it is. So it sounds like you um, you deal with a lot of sort of internal qu queries, like um, yeah. different departments. Um, do you also get a lot of external, like researchers? What, what type of people access the material you have? Yeah, so th this is quite interesting because this has changed a lot over the last... Um, well, definitely, particularly the last six years, but sort of more broadly, the last 10 years, um, when our inquiries used to very much, with the exception of one or two business areas, all be external members of the public. And they were pretty much all genealogists, um, mm -hmm. because obviously TFL has, I think it's currently the third largest employer in London behind the NHS and the Metropolitan Police wow. um, but it's always been a massive em em employer within London um, so with that come sort of staff records um, so it's a, it's a bit of a, a ge genealogist hunting grounds really um, so they were traditionally our, our user base um, 
but you know we are a business archive um the vast majority of our collections aren't about family history they're about the history of our organization the history of transport history of engineering there's so much social history in there economic history art and architecture so i always knew that not only in terms of uh, kind of demographic of the general public who was using us but more specifically our internal user base it should have been drastically different so yeah. we've done an awful lot of work over the last 10 years to, to change that and now um, if you look at our sort of inquiry stats it's probably about 60% um, external and 40% internal but for, in terms of people who actually come in and use the archives, it's about 70% internal and 30% external because the internal people are, um, the internal people tend to be looking for very specific information. Uh, so they always want to come and look them, or generally always want to come and look themselves um, to, to, to make sure that they're, they're getting the right thing. Um, and I love the fact that we are now sort of in a position where we can really argue that we are a genuine asset to the business. You know, we, we, we're used on current projects. It, this is not just people who are interested in, in, in history and what went before. They're actually using the records to inform current business practices, which is exactly what an archive or business archive in particular should be used for. Is um, your data that you have on hand then, is that used for, do other companies access that to um, organisations such as architectural organisations or anything like that? Do they collate information from you? Yep, we do. Yep, we do sometimes get um, inquiries from um, architectural companies. Um, you know, below ground in London is um, very complicated yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. an awful lot going on down there uh, tunnels all over the place utility pipes all over the place um, so there's yeah there's an awful lot of work that, that needs to go in into any kind of construction and a lot of research work that needs to go into any kind of construction within London yeah um, so they will often come to us to to find out um, sort of the history of of buildings and, and areas um, and then our own infrastructure protection team uses an awful lot um, to particularly to prove boundaries um, of sort of um, ownership um, so and they will use property records that can go back to sort of the 18th century um, a couple of times they've used ones that have gone back to the 17th century um, just to kind of chart that progression of, of how a how a boundary has changed and you know if somebody digs here whose whose property are they actually going into um whose soil are they actually going into um it gets yeah it gets very complicated <laughs> that's the type of information that they needed to build crossrail and things like that right yeah absolutely and um sort of bank capacity um upgrade project um all, all of those types of things really um and then um you'll get it quite a lot with um 
if they're doing any sort of station modernization, the, particularly if it involves work on pla the platforms or um, sort of subway, uh, the subway areas. Um, they want, they basically want to know if we sort of start knocking down here, are we liable to find anything that, that in the past they just sort of covered up? Yeah. Um, uh, you, you get a sort of quite a it's not a trend it's um, an ethos now that if if you're um refurbishing a station you should as much as possible try to refurbish it to sort of an an original um design print um so sort of there was one i can't remember the, which station it was recently but that they've been going through through this process and they were sort of well currently our columns are green but were they always green um, or should we be painting them a different color? So of course they come to the archives to look through for old photographs or, or old um, design surveys to, to, to work out what color, if they're taking it back to the original sort of design print, what color they should actually be painting them. So it's really interesting. I think that's something that the public do appreciate as well. You've got a station like um, Baker Street, which is still very kind of Victorian um, mm. and that, that's very popular with tourists and things like that for that precise reason. Yeah, and even sort of some of the, the newer stations. I mean, if you think of the stations on the Jubilee Line extension, sort of Westminster, Southwark, they, they may not be to everyone's taste, but they are magnificent feats of design and architecture in their own right. They've got that very sort of space agey feel. Yeah, um, Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you, you know, and it, it is something that actually has been part of um, this organization's sort of culture and approach to, to, to building from but virtually from the outset but, but but definitely from sort of the 1920s um, it's been you know if we are going to build something if we are going to have an impact on the built environment and people's experiences of traveling and perhaps their mood then we, we want to try and, and get it right we want to try and make it pleasant and and, and you know, interesting space for people so you've mentioned that um you have maps and things like that is there any type of material in the collection that you would think people would be surprised that you have like um videos or anything like that um, it, I always say that when I took this job, which was what virtually 10 years ago now, um, I didn't take it for the collections. I didn't necessarily think I'd be all that interested in, in the collections. Right. Um, I, I took it for what I thought I could do for the service. Mm -hmm. Um, but the collections really amaze me um, and it, pretty much every day I find something that's interesting and the reason for that I think is because they're not they're not they're definitely not solely transport history I would argue that they're not even predominantly transport history um, because although fundamentally when they're sort of embarking on a new project yes it is about getting from a to b mm -hmm. actually all of the documentation around it 
tends to be about you know analysis of demand and looking at demographics and looking at design and architecture and engaging with um, the general London public to find out their attitudes and, and what they want so um, actually most of the material is has got that much broader element to it um, and then even sort of the the older material or some of the older material we've got so from sort of the a lot of the material in the 19th century particularly first half of the 19th century is um, quite heavily omnibus orientated um, and you know, so we end up having sort of these journals of uh, horses um, that list every horse that the company owned, um, where they were bought from, how much they were bought for, um, what, you know, what happened to them. Did they have to be put down because they went lame? Did they get sold on because it was decided they were actually far too good to be pulling omnibuses and they may as well make some more money out of them <laughs> um, but by selling them off to, to somebody who was going to do something sort of a bit more significant with them? Um, so there's sort of things like that. There's, there's things we've come across in the past, um, sort of in the early days of, of, of the tubes where... Um, you had to have sort of different licenses to carry different products on the tube. So if you wanted to carry fish on the tube, oh, <laughs> uh, like going to, to and from fish markets, you had to have a license. Even the, um, the sort of the Victorian organ grinders, they had to have a license to transport their monkeys around. Well, they can cause some Um So, you know, there's, there's all, there's, there's all kind of these little bits and pieces to it. And, um, and then there's you, you get great correspondence in there um we, we sort of from notable individuals um you know we've got um some letters from rita hayworth's agents oh. um so apparently she'd been filming over here and um her and her friends took to traveling around on the tube um and they really liked a lot of the poster work that they saw so when they when she got back to america she said to her agent oh can you write off to whoever it is that's in charge of that kind of stuff and, and see if they can give me any copies of their artwork. Um, so yeah, you, you come across all sorts and then sort of the, the audio visual is quite interesting because that's something we've only recently sort of started looking into. Um, for years and years, it just sat there on um, you know, VHS tapes and, and, and audio tapes and, and reel and a lot of the time we didn't even know what was on there um so we have gone through the process of getting quite a bit of it converted um and you know we one of them for example is this it's a bit mad but it's kind of brilliant as well it's from the early 50s and it's basically just this footage of a route master bus um being driven at speed round a test track um Ooh. So it's so as I say, it's sort of a bit bonkers because there's not even really any commentary on it. You're just watching this bus go round and round, but you kind of get to see it wobbling. Um, and, and then there's that, and oh, is it going to tip over? Oh no, it's not going to tip over. Which of course is what they were testing. For. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 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 yeah, there's there's sort of all sorts of weird and wonderful things get thrown up really. Early Top Gear there. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should do a Top Gear voiceover on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, 
So you have a lot of social history in your archive, not just transport history then. Mm, mm, yeah, very much so. Um, but, but, and that's for sort of a couple of reasons. I suppose the, the, the first reason would be um, London doesn't and hasn't grown and developed without a very good transport network mm. um so you know you get you get that side of it um you know sort of liaison with with, with government and different boroughs about well where should we build next if we build this sort of housing estate here can you supply bus routes to it can we do anything about about providing extra extra transport um so you get that kind of side of it then you also as i said sort of alluded to earlier you get the the employment side of it um and and that's you know right from um how much is somebody paid at a certain moment in in history and for doing what kind of job do they get what kind of money um what what types of jobs are women doing are women getting the same amount of money um do we have any references to um sort of um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, um, you know, when does that start coming in, into the collection? Um, and then also at various points, um, this, this organisation has been very involved in overseas recruitment. So, so you get sort of the immigration element as well. Um, so after the Second World War, um, there were a, sort of a, a lot of Maltese um, and Polish were employed, um, particularly on the buses. Um, and then um, in sort of the 50s, um, this, the, the organisation started setting up recruitment centres in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so, you, so you get that element coming through into the collections as well. Um, there's material in there that's, look, that's um, sort of asking quite sensible questions around um, sort of Sikhs wearing turbans um, and you know how do we fit a hat over the top of that or and eventually obviously they realize no we don't have to fit a hat over the top of it we just give them a badge that fits on their on their turban but uh, it's um yeah there's there's, there's, there's some really really interesting stuff in there so what kind of challenges do you come up against when um, handling all this material and managing it? In terms of the management, the I mean, the biggest challenge, and you'll probably have every archivist in the country would say this, um, is, is simply the resources. Mm -hmm. um, and that's both in terms of, you know, the people, number of people uh, working in the service um, and sort of the, the budget that, that you're given. And that's not necessarily sort of a, a, to, the, to the detriment of the, the parent organisation. It's just, I think, the cost of looking after archives and making archives as accessible as possible is much higher than many people um, realise. And appreciate um, you know we often get asked the question about um, digital copies of, of our material our, our physical material so just just to kind of give, give you a bit of an idea our physical collection we've got over 165,000 files and items mm -hmm. that live in 
well now it's up to about 20,000 boxes um, so it's, it's a pretty big um, collection uh, particularly for, for business um, and people you don't people are so used to the the google age the amazon age that they're not used to this idea that you can still only come into a building and see the physical item we can't deliver you a digital copy of that and when when they sort of say well why don't you just get all that digitized you sort of turn around and say well have you got at least 35 million pounds to give me yeah <laughs> no it wouldn't cost that much would it yes it, it would because this is we're not just talking about shoving something on a scanner mm-hmm. <laughs> on an office scanner and doing it that way so so you know even even something that seems as straightforward as let's provide a digital copy of something which then of course facilitates access um is for the archives world um requires a lot more thought and a lot more resource than than, than it would in for, for you know just some home scanning or something like that um and then it's just you know as i say the, the size of the team you know our team for example there's um four permanent members of staff um versus out the rest of the organization which is sort of at the moment about twenty-seven thousand staff um all spread across over 300 different sites so you know that makes collecting material really really difficult um and making sure that people know to, to give us material and getting those processes set up um so that's sort of one, one of the biggest challenges um and that's particularly true in in the digital age um because I think the, the digital age has seen this explosion of, of data that's being created. Um, and it's, but it's also at the same time sort of broken down a lot of the centralization that there used to be uh, around record keeping. Um, you know, so many organizations used to have sort of central registries, for example, central filing registries. Um, or even just within sort of a department, they'd, they'd have a, a sort of an area of the rolling racking that was for them. Um, and everybody sort of used, the, had to comply to that filing system that, that was within that rolling racking. Whereas in the digital world, we've lost a lot of that control. We've lost a lot of that centralization. Um, and as archivists, our kind of job is is to firstly try and work out what is being created then try and get it and then actually try and reimpose um some of that structure um and classification that has perhaps been lacking in the the digital world um so yeah it's very difficult um but it's very exciting as well it's quite exciting to be kind of at the vanguard of something um because yeah, this is what I always think with with digital, with sort of um, audio conversion, that type of thing. Yeah, with with paper, we've pretty much got that down. You know, we've been dealing with paper for centuries. We yeah. know what affects it and what doesn't affect it. We we know what processes work and what processes don't. But with digital, we're sort of making decisions and, and we're trying different things, and we think they're working, but we won't actually 100% know for another sort of 20, 30 years. Um, 
uh, we won't know kind of how robust those, those decisions have proven to be and those processes actually are so um, it's it's a little bit frightening but as I say it's also actually really quite cool I guess to, to actually be at the vanguard of something. It's, it's a living archive so you're always you're always adding to it um, what kind of things are you sort of bringing into it? Um, so we have the what I would always term the sort of the more boring material which is are actually our vital records which are um, sort of the board papers um, minutes agendas high-level committees right, yeah. standing orders all of that kind of thing as I say personally I think they're, they're really dull but but they are the the, the, the set of material yeah. that if, if everything else about the organization fell down that's how you could rebuild it or know what they were doing uh, <laughs> very dry yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously we'll be looking at sort of uh, annual accounts and budgets but then beyond that, we're our, our kind of main. What we generally say is that it's it's records that are documenting decision making processes that are, are evidencing our rights and responsibilities and promises we've made uh, to the general public or to government, uh, whichever that may be. Um, we're looking for material that. Um, demonstrates how we have interacted with London and its people um, so that's where you kind of get this idea of the built environment coming in um, and, and sort of art and architecture as well as sort of consultations and, and on all of that kind of thing um, and then uh, obviously providing a transport network we we produce an awful lot of um, uh, demand analysis um, and for, for future historians, that kind of demand analysis is priceless. Yeah. Um, so, so, so it's all that kind of thing. Um, we don't particularly care what format it's in. We, we sort of tend to say now that we prefer digital um, because we are, you know, that is the future. Yeah. Um, and particularly if something is born digital, there sort of seems little point in then printing it out to paper just to sort of store it and yeah. put it in, in, in a box. Um, but, but ultimately we're, we're sort of format neutral and we'll just do our best to look after whatever comes our way. <laughs> so do you actively look for stuff or do you get um, offers from... Uh, general public people or, or people with other collections who, who have donated to you? It's both. Um, so within the business, we, you know, predominantly we, we try to be proactive about our collecting and try to um, have agreements with different business areas. I mean, that obviously, you, as I've said about kind of the size of the organisation versus the size of the team, there are massive difficulties with that mm -hmm. but, but that's always the way we, we try and go we also do get business areas that, that, or individuals that come to us in independently which is great because then we can have those conversations with them um, we liaise with uh, London Transport Museum uh, very frequently to make sure that if we are being offered material um, either from within the business or externally that, it, that it's going to the right collection Mm -hmm. um, generally, if it's created by the business, it, sh it should be coming to corporate archives, unless it's an 
bus or a tube or something like that because uh, I don't want those they yeah. can have those <laughs> but yeah generally if it's created by the business um the first port of call should should be the corporate archives um but then externally you, you tend to find they kind of fall into two categories they will either be former members of staff or sort of the partners of former members of staff right, right. Um, who sort of took stuff home with them um, mm -hmm. usually for safekeeping to be honest um, and have now run out of room or the partners have told them they've run out of room <laughs> <laughs> so so they're sort of offering it back um, and then the other type of material you'll get offered is sort of private collections we generally don't take private collections they would be more the realm of the museum because uh, we generally say our sort of starting point for collecting is that it has to have been created by or commissioned by this organization right um otherwise it's sort of a bit endless it could yeah this what, what to, to what we took in um but the exceptions would be if we felt they sort of plugged a significant gap in our collections so you know the one that we've taken in qu quite recently um that is a, a good example of that is a, a private individual who um had uh taken photographs of the construction of croydon tramlink so he just sort of spent pretty much every day that croydon tramlink was, was being built uh, sort of walking along various parts of the route photographing stations and track um, so you got to see the development of it and actually we didn't have that kind of material um, so so that did and, and we did feel that 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 plugged uh, as I say sort of a significant gap um, but it is rare that we take private private offerings so you've mentioned gaps in your archive. What are the, the hopes for the future for um, developing or expanding? Is there any area you want to make more accessible or audience you want to target? Yeah, um, we've got, uh, we're actually in the process of moving the, the archive service. Um, so when life returns to normal or new normal after after COVID-19 lockdowns and working from home we will be opening up in um, new offices in Stratford um, and one of the things we want to do there is perhaps hold some more sort of public open days um, and engage with the local communities in in that area um, we've got sort of a project that we've been working on around the first world war uh where so we've got hundreds of letters that were written by members of our staff who were serving overseas in the first world war and they wrote them home um but they actually wrote them to the organization's staff magazine which is how we've got them um and we've been engaging with current sort of station staff or any member of staff really to um, 
do audio recordings of those letters so to give voice to, to to the past which then again enables those letters to be more accessible um, to sort of people with visual impairments um, or reading difficulties um, and that's that's an area we'd really like to take forward um, to, to do the same kind of thing with, with other parts of the collection um, it would be parts of the collection that have sort of that 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 good social context to them. I don't think anybody really wants to to read minutes of finance committee meetings onto on tape. Um, it's quite a niche, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So, so, so you know, it's 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 that kind of accessibility that that we're sort of looking at at the moment. So it sounds like you have. A variety of interesting things but what in your opinion is the most interesting thing that you find? <laughs> uh, well I love the horse book but that's because I love horses oh, so okay. yeah, slight bias there. <laughs> <laughs> I really like um, we've got uh, a royal warrant signed by Queen Victoria um, that gives permission to basically construct tunnels under Parliament Square. Um, I, I like that because firstly it's sort of quite, you know, it catches the ear, doesn't it? If you say, oh, we've got Queen Victoria in the archive and her signature, people, yeah. people can relate to that. So yeah. it kind of get, gets them in as a, as a hook. But by the same token, it kind of, I think it's a good, as a document, it's a good illustration of... Um, of the agreements that, that we have to go to go through of um, complexities um, of, of the kind of whole rights and, and, and ownership that, that I was alluding to earlier. Um, but I, yeah, I, so I like that one for, for what it offers, but I, I personally tend to like kind of the, the slightly more obscure things. So we've, we've got sort of a, a really lovely set of material from, the lost property office um we, we could have taken thousands of these letters but we just sampled some of them to to, to 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 so that we've got a flavor of them and it's people who've just written in saying you know thank you for finding my property um but a lot of it uh, a lot of them are actually from children um, and they're, they're, they're great so you get these children writing in and of course they're drawing pictures um or they're sort of saying, um, so there was for a while, I think they do still try to do it. There was sort of this little scheme where if somebody had lost um, sort of a teddy bear and this teddy bear wasn't found, they would often send them another unclaimed teddy. <laughs> So they send them a replacement. <laughs> yeah. So, so so you sort of get these little letters from kids saying, "Oh, thank you very, thank you very much for for my new teddy. Um, I'm I'm sorry that you couldn't find Humphrey or whatever his name is, but I will look after this one. Um, so, so things like that are, are, are really are really nice. So not many people know that uh, TFL is actually also a part-time rescue service for soft toys. They are indeed. And a rescue service for animals. Um, you get a lot of animals abandoned on oh, TFL land. Um, yeah, dogs, horses in particular. Horses? Um, yeah, yeah, you'll get horses abandoned on TFL land. Um, and so there is actually sort of a member of our legal team who um, is responsible for 
basically taking care of them. Um, they get them checked out by vets um, and then they try to sort of rehome them or they'll give them to animal shelters or yeah that's the there's so much that goes into running a transport network that you I wouldn't did not think know of. That. <laughs> <laughs> so we've come to the end of our time. Is there anything else you would like to uh, mention before we finish up? No, not really. It's just um, all, all, all I would really say is just to encourage people to not only check out the TFL corporate archives, but you know archives within their own local areas because I think you'll be surprised at what you can find in them and, and often they'll put sort of little exhibitions on and things like that and um, I, I always say that you may you may not think you're interested but actually if you if you go along or go online and, and, and have a little look around you you will soon find something that piques your interest um, so yeah give, give it a go Thank you for agreeing to speak to me today. Um, I'm sure listeners can find that very insightful, particularly about rogue horses, which yeah. I did not consider as part of <laughs> the transport remit. Um, you can visit some of the archive digitally at tfl.gov.uk or you can go direct to you at, what's the website? Uh, TFL Corporate Archives Catalogue co.uk yeah and check it out it's queen victoria's royal warrant up there uh queen victoria's royal warrant is the description of it is up there but the digital pictures of it aren't i'm afraid if you get however but oh but there were there are um there are digital images of it on the um on the on the, on our tfl pages so our tfl pages are as you said the, the main tfl website which is tfl.gov.uk and then we're in the about us culture and heritage section and in there there's actually quite a lot of um sort of research guides um and sort of our top 20 highlights and that kind of thing um and yeah there's there's a bit more about the queen victoria document in those as well as lots of information about sheltering on the tubes during world war Two and building planes and all sorts of weird and wonderful things anything about the uh infamous urban legend of the plague pits uh no <laughs> oh, maybe you need to get one of them that's the question <laughs> coming <it>? next <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you very much for talking to me today